Our Bible reading this morning is from John 10. Two weeks ago in our four- and five-year-old kindergarten class, we were reminding the children that God speaks to us through his word. When it came time for our gospel lesson, I brought out the Bible, and when I opened it, one of the child, children proclaimed, God is going to speak. We would do well to consider that child's faith because God is going to speak. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. God has spoken. Good morning to you. Are you awake out there? Thank you. You know, it seems like a long time ago that we began this series out of the Gospel of John. Maybe for some of you, you thought John was still alive back then. The truth is, it's not that long ago. And we said that when we began, that John wanted to communicate something about Jesus, that if you understood what Jesus said and did and the miracles that were surrounding, that you would believe. We know that because... John told us that. At the very end of the Gospel of John, in chapter 20, he says, I write this for this reason. I could have written all the miracles. He only records seven. I I could have written down everything that Jesus uh, taught. He only writes down seven of Jesus' teachings. 
I could have done all of that in order uh, that you might believe. But I wrote the ones that I have in order that you might believe that he is the son of God and have life in his name. That's that's really what we're doing here as we're walking through to see what the claims of Jesus are and what evidences that John gives us to the to the truth and validity of these claims and asking you as an investigator asking you as a listener to just try it on just try and see if it's true and if it is true it's got implications for the rest of your life for the way you live and so in our text today Jesus is going to tell a story a very short section we often call them parables because they have a meaning or a purpose and the metaphors are supposed to point to something. And that makes it a little different than just any story. But I want to decode that for you so that you can understand the parable. Because obviously his original hearers didn't understand. So he had to make some statements after giving the, the story to the, his listeners. But the ultimate thing to understand from this, and this is kind of the point. Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd. Here's his point by this story. If you don't have Jesus as your good shepherd, you have someone else as your shepherd. Or something else. Even if it's you, we by nature long to have someone who cares for us, who loves us, who leads us, even if that's us. And that's temporarily fulfilling that longing Ultimately, we were built to have someone like that. And Jesus is saying, I'm that guy. I'm who you've been longing for. I'm the, I'm the shepherd that cares for you, uh, uh, leads you, who takes care of you, who knows your name. But if you don't have me as your shepherd, you will have someone or something else. And so in this particular passage... He's going to give us three pieces of evidence for you to evaluate of whether he's the good shepherd or not compared to all the other shepherds that you have in your life. All the other good things that have cared for you, loved for you, known your name, known you, and evaluate whether he is the good shepherd or all these other things are the good shepherd for you. And the very first one that he has for us to evaluate here is... My people follow me. He gives this parable and he's got four characters in it that very quickly help you understand what he's communicating. The very first one, he says there's these sheep. He says that uh, the sheep are are those who hear my voice, who believe me, who follow me, who are followers of of Jesus. That's who the, the sheep are in the story. Then he says there's these thieves or at least one thief. And he seeks to kill and destroy. We know that because he says that in verse 10 about this thief who comes in by other ways other than the door. And then he says there's this shepherd. And this shepherd, he's saying, is both my father and myself because he's calling himself the good shepherd. But then there's a fourth one that makes sense of this passage. And that's this door, door of the sheep by which the sheep come in, but also by which the shepherd comes in. And he's setting up a contrast for us between the good shepherd 
and the thief. And he says they're different in two ways. The first one is that the thief comes in by another way other than the front door. Because I'm the door and I'm not letting him in. I'm the good shepherd that keeps the thief that wants to destroy and kill out. But he comes in another way. But this door also lets in the shepherd. So there's the contrast, how they get in to get at the sheep. One with a good intention, one with a bad intention. And the one with a good intention, you know, because he comes through the front door. The second contrast he sets between this thief and the shepherd is in the voice. How they know. In, in verse 4, it says that my sheep know my voice. And in verse 5, it says the sheep don't know the stranger's voice. And so there's a contrast in what they know. In verse 9, it says that the sheep come through that door, not just the shepherd. And so we have to ask the question, how do they get in that door? Jesus is trying to communicate that he's the door. He's not. I know it seems like a mix of metaphors and he's doing it on purpose, that he is both the shepherd and he's the door into the sheep, to the sheep. And what he's trying to say is that I'm the way. So in, in about four chapters, he's going to make this, this long discourse, this long teaching. He's going to make this statement as the culmination of that teaching. He's going to say, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. I know that sounds exclusive. I know that sounds like, hey, there are a lot of different religions out there. How, how can Christianity claim to be the only one? Listen, I'm not saying it. It's Jesus himself who says, I'm the way. You want, you, you want this life that I offer, what's called an abundant life? I'm the way to that life. I'm the truth that teaches about that life. I'm the life itself. It's one of the things that I think that we struggle with, with the word abundant life. We've almost, we have almost taken that idea of abundant life and made it synonymous with the American dream. That is, that if you have an abundant life, somehow that quality of life is very similar to achieving the American dream. When that's not what Jesus promises at all. Remember a few weeks ago I told you that there are two different words that the ancients used who wrote the Bible to talk about life. One of them was this idea of bios. We get the word biology from it. Physical life. If you're breathing right now, it's because you have life. If you're not breathing right now, you're not alive. Check it out. If you see your neighbor not breathing, they don't have life. That's how we know there's a heartbeat. Well, the people who, who, who wrote the Bible, the language and they had, they said there's that, that kind of life, but there's also this other kind of life. They called it Zoe, Z-O-E. And it literally means a quality or type of life that is more than just breathing, having a heartbeat. And Jesus says, I'm bringing that kind of quality of life. And he uses it in this text, he calls it abundant life. And we tend to think that means that nothing ever goes wrong in my life. Because I have this life. That things begin to start work out for me because I'm a follower of Jesus. The problem with that, 
There's no problem with that American dream other than this. It's not in the Bible. And it's not what Jesus promises. In fact, for most Christians, for most people who become followers of Jesus, their life doesn't get easier. It gets harder. Because now you've got a whole different person that you're trying to please other than yourself. A whole whole different set of values to live your life better uh, by other than the ones that you have developed. And therefore, it's become more complicated. It's become more complicated because not only is that true, but there are people out there that don't like the way you live your life. And don't agree with the way you live your life. They liked it the way you used to live it better. And so when he says, I I come to give you an abundant life, he's not necessarily talking about if you follow me, everything's just going to work out. In fact, it probably isn't going to work out very often in this life because you're a follower of mine. So if he's not talking about necessarily that you're going to, you're, all the brokenness, all the things that are wrong in your life right now is not going to get that much better by being a follower, then how can it be an abundant life? I think he answered it when he said, I am the life. We get Jesus. Think if you're the poor Christian in Calcutta who has nothing how, how can you say he gets abundant life? Because he gets the same Jesus that if you're a wolf of Wall Street. Same Jesus. That's what Jesus is promising. I'm the life. I'm what you get. If I'm the good shepherd, I come and live in you. In verse 4, he says that when... When he, talking about Jesus, has brought out all his own, he goes before them and the sheep follow him for they know his voice. You ever thought about what that means? That, That you know his voice? One of the things is that there is this gospel message of what Jesus has done for us. But the way in which you hear that is different for Almost every one of us in this room, if we had the time and you didn't have to go to lunch and we just asked you, how did you first hear God's call on your life? How did you hear God's voice? I'm not talking about audible. How did your heart hear it? It'd be very different for almost everyone in the room. But let me give you these six ways. The the elders are reading a book called uh, Loving the City by Tim Keller and he, he, he grabs a hold of these six big ideas on how God's voice is heard. How the gospel comes to, to be understood by people. And obviously it doesn't describe everybody. But the fact that you have another reason proves the point. And the very first one that, he, that he, he, he gets us to grapple with is that some people come to God out of a fear of judgment and death. I had a roommate in college. And when he... Uh, shared how he heard God. It was after a terrible car accident that put him in the hospital for six months where they thought he was going to die. 
and his family members and his friends who came and constantly shared the gospel with him while he was recuperating in the hospital bed. And that's how he heard the call and he became a Christian. That's how he heard the voice, through this fear of death. Because that fear of death wasn't something way in the distant. It was present and immediate. He could feel it. The second one is that some people come to God out of a desire for release from the burdens of guilt and shame. Don't underestimate guilt and shame. Don't underestimate how guilt traps people into feeling like they're enslaved, feeling like that there's no way out of the box, that there's no way out of the maze or the shame of the things that have gone on in their life that weigh them down. There's nothing like being told that following Jesus means you can be clean. The only people that that makes any sense to is people who wake up every day and feel like they're unclean. And maybe that's how you heard the voice. The third is that some come to God out of an attractiveness of truth. And, and maybe that's how for you. You're, a, you're a, a logical thinker and you want to hear all of the claims and all the evidences and you evaluate them. And that's what, how you heard the voice was just an examining truth. And for some of people, particularly in Presbyterian churches, that's how a lot of Presbyterians come to faith. is through the attractiveness of the truth of the gospel. A fourth is that some come to God uh, to satisfy unfulfilled longings. Longings like, I want to matter. I want to have meaning and purpose. I I, want to live for something. A longing longing for relationship, a longing uh, uh, to, to last. Those are longings in people's hearts. And that's how some people hear the gospel, because Jesus is a fulfillment of their longings. Fifth, some come to God for help with a problem. There's something going on in their life that is uh, overwhelming. It, it, it is uh, uh, paralyzing them from moving forward. And, and, and so God uses that problem to tell them about their ultimate problem. That, that uh, penultimate problem becomes an evidence or a shadow of the ultimate problem that we have with God that Jesus satisfies and, and even if that particular problem doesn't go away, the ultimate problem can be satisfied. And then the sex is that some uh, come to God simply out of a desire to be loved. And that seems to be a more and more powerful longing of the heart that this generation hears the gospel through. The point I'm trying to make is, or that Jesus is making when he says that my sheep hear my voice and therefore they follow me. Is that it's, it doesn't mean that they hear the voice the same way. There are as many different ways people have heard the voice of God as there are people in the room. The second piece of evidence for you to consider is that I will die for my people. Do you see that in verse 11? I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. He says it again in verse 15, just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. Let me tell you two things it's not saying and one thing it is saying. One of the things it's not, he's not saying is I will die like everyone else. He's not, he's not saying I'm going to tell you that I'm going to die just like every man dies. All men die, but not all men die for the same reason. 
history does not debate that Jesus ever existed. That doesn't mean there aren't religious people who debate that, but they, they debate it not based on fact, but existentially. Historians don't debate any longer whether Jesus existed. There's too many extra biblical, that it says outside the Bible, proofs of Jesus' existence. In fact, very few historians even debate that Jesus died on a cross. It, there's so many extra biblical evidences that Jesus lived and that the Romans executed Jesus on a cross outside the scriptures. If historians aren't debating whether Jesus died or how Jesus died, then what are historians debating about Jesus? Why he died? For what purpose? Or was there a purpose at all for his death? Now, that's what historians have difference of opinion over. But Jesus answers that question of why he died by saying, I'm going to die for my sheep. So one of the things he's not saying is, I don't die for without reason. The other, he's not saying, I'm going to die as an example to show people how to die well. Jesus is not saying, you know, God said, be holy for I am holy. And therefore, I'm going to show you a holy life. That doesn't help. If, if you know that the Bible standard to have a relationship with God is for you to be perfect in thought and in deed, you know you fall short. If there's somebody in this room who doesn't know they have fallen short of the standard of God, and this is the very first time you're learning that, we need to talk. Not because you're, it's embarrassing to not know that. Just simply, I want to show you the evidence that you don't measure up. But then to also hear that Jesus came and lived a perfect life as an example of what it means to live a perfect life, that's not helpful. In fact, it's crushing to know that someone can actually do it. Before Jesus, we could all say what? Yeah, that's a standard. God knows nobody can make it. But here comes Jesus and does it. And if that's all he's communicating is, I want to show you an example that can be done then we're crushed. It's kind of like going to class and there's a guy in the class or a lady in the class and she gets a hundred on every exam. She's blowing the curve. Jesus is blowing the curve if all he is is our example. That's not what he's saying. He didn't say, I, I didn't come here to die so that you can have an example of how to die well or to even to live well. I came for my people. That word for is instead of, in place of, as a substitute. Because the Bible says, for the wages of sin, the wages of our rebellion, is death. Somebody has to die. And Jesus says, I'm doing it for them. If the thief comes to kill and destroy, I come to give life. How do I give life? By dying in their place. As a substitute, if they're supposed to die for their rebellion, if they're supposed to die for their sin, I'm going to do it for them. That's what a good shepherd does. Now, you tell me if one of your shepherds have ever done that for you. 
in your place, including you. How does it accomplish? How does his death accomplish that? We go to Peter, and Peter's one of the inner circle with John, and and Peter puts it this way in 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also suffered, that's his death, once for sins. The righteous for the unrighteous. That is, he's holy, we're not. That he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh. That is, his death is what gave us abundant life. The only question on the table is not for why he died, but did it work? Did it accomplish what he said he came to accomplish? Let me give you two proofs. One of them has to do with our understanding of what Jesus did on the cross. That is, when when Jesus goes to die on the cross, what did he actually do? Some have said that Jesus, when Jesus died on the cross, he died for everyone. And because he died for everyone, he made it possible for you to believe. He made it possible for his death to cover your sin. What's the problem with that? The problem with that kind of thinking is that it only makes it possible. And therefore, the power of the cross is being limited because what do we have? We have loads of people who don't believe including the very people in this text, who verse 6 says they don't understand. Even in this text, we have people who don't believe. And so everybody limits the cross. Some people just limit its power. It's not powerful enough to save everyone because it needs something from you. The other limitation is that it limits its scope. Who's it applied to? That is, when Jesus died on the cross, did he die for everyone or did he die only for his sheep? What does the text tell you? I know my sheep. I died for my sheep. What does that imply? There are some who are not his sheep. In fact, the book of Revelation will put it this way, that when Jesus died, he put the names of his people on his heart because it was for them he died. Here's what it means. Is it long before you existed, long before your parents and your grandparents existed, God knew about you. And when Jesus died, it was your name he took to the cross. And therefore, everyone he died for, he will save. And so there's no limit on the power. It's just limited to a sheep. And therefore, you and I, we can pray like heck. We can share with full uh, 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 commitment of our hearts because we don't know who is and who isn't. We can treat everyone as though they were the ones for whom Jesus died. But we can also be assured that those who are His will be saved by Him no matter how long it takes. Which brings to the second way we know it worked. If the the first one is He died exactly for those for whom uh, that He calls His own, who know His voice. The second is He says, I will rise again. You see that in verse 17 and 18? For this reason the Father loves me, 
because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one uh, takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord and I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. What's he talking about? Lay it down, take it up. He's talking about his death and his resurrection. He's talking about rising from the dead. And you might say, but those ancients, they believed in that kind of stuff. But we modern, we don't believe in that. Listen, nobody back then believed in the resurrection either. You say, but the Pharisees did. Wait a minute. The Pharisees only believed in national resurrection. The nation of Israel will be resurrected. Remember, they've been overthrown. They have been crushed under the boot of the Romans. So they believed in a resurrection, but a resurrection of a nation, not of a person. Nobody in the ancient world believed in individual resurrection. So when Lazarus is raised from the dead, they're all marvel to the point where they think this is a movement of who? Satan. And when Jesus raises from the dead, then they've got to put that out. Because if if people start believing in a man who died and is alive, then this movement is going to be launched. You ever wonder why you can go to Israel today and you cannot find Jesus' tomb? We can find a lot of things. We can find the place where he was crucified. We can, we can go to the place where he was uh, tried. But why can you not find his tomb? Now, I know you can go over there and a bunch of people will, if you give them enough money, will show you something that looks like a tomb that he could have been buried in. But that's so many coulda, woulda, shouldas that there's no way for you to know. But why don't we know? Why didn't the early Christians venerate? That means set apart the place in which Jesus was buried. If they set apart the place in which he died, why haven't they set apart a place where he was buried? Because he's alive. Because he's not dead. You don't venerate the graveyard of someone who's alive. You don't go visit a grave of the living. Over 500 Christians claimed to have seen Jesus alive after he had been executed. And this isn't just 500 people that are random. These people were under great pressure to recant that they ever saw him alive. Over a 40-day period of time, people will go to their deaths for what they believe is true. No one goes to their death for a lie they know to be a lie. And it's one thing if you threaten me, but a lot of people were losing their children, losing their property, were losing their marriages, and yet they remained faithful to say, we saw Jesus. Don't you know if the Jews had found one person, if they could bribe one person, if the Romans could have bribed one of these 500 people, we would know about it. We would know about it because we already know that they, they bribed the guards to say that his body was stolen. We already know that. Why don't we know about any of the five, 500 recanting? Because it didn't happen. Because we would know if they did. Why is the resurrection so important? Just two quick reasons. The first one is, it's, it's proof of the past. That is, it worked. 
the sacrifice was accepted because he's alive. For, what, for the reason why he said he was going to die. But it's also a deposit on the future. The way that the, the Bible talks about it is in 1 Corinthians 15 is that Jesus' resurrection is a first fruit of our own resurrection. That one day, we too, the graves will give up our bodies and we will be resurrected. So now we end where we began. The parable touches a very deep nerve in us that unless Jesus is our good shepherd, someone else... Or something else will be. Jesus is saying, I am the good shepherd. Examine it. See if it's true. Look at the evidence. Evaluate. Investigate. And you can only do four things with it. If you've done the investigation, you've done the work, you can only do four things. You can reject it. That is, I've investigated and I still don't believe it. Okay. That's, that's, that's your right. It's disappointing, but it's your right. And I understand if if you've done the investigative work and you don't believe. Well, you can keep investigating. That's an option. That is, you haven't decided yet. You You haven't come down on the evidence. You could believe it. That is, you can say, yes, I believe that Jesus had my name when he went to the cross and died for me. And he rose. And that's how I know. That's how I know it was accepted by the Father and therefore I'm forgiven. But that has an implication. And that's the fourth thing. You can reject it. You can keep investigating it. You can believe it. But if you believe it, you've got to obey it. Jesus isn't just comfort. He's a life. A way of living. David says something amazing about the law, that, that just marvels me. He says, I love the law. How can he love the law? Paul says the law kills. How can you love that which would kills you? Because Jesus came to what? Take away the penalty of the law and take it for himself. And therefore, it's no longer a penalty. And so what's left with the law? It can't kill you anymore. It now becomes a way in which to live that glorifies and shows your gratitude to God. And so if he really is your good shepherd, he's leading. Are you following where he's leading? Let's take a moment and pray. Father, thank you so much. Thank you so much that you have shown us the good shepherd, the one that we've longed for, where all the shadows point, all the other shepherds. And I pray in this room that there's going to be people who are in any of those categories. They've rejected the good shepherd. And I pray that you continue to give them more and more evidence that they might hear the call. Others, a father, are still investigating. And I pray that you continue to give them more and more work of your spirit that you might show them, that you might hear, they might hear your call. And I pray for those that believe that they might recognize that it has implications for the way in which they live. That there's a life that accompanies belief. In Jesus' name, amen.